grab our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 6. And let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your word, for your Holy Spirit, for how much that you have revealed about yourself, about us, about history, about time, about how things are going to end, how we have eternal hope because you are the sovereign God, the one who works all things after the counsel of your own will. And you're going to bring history to its prescribed end and you're gonna win. And how grateful we are for that. We worship you this morning as the, the almighty God and Lord Jesus for being the lamb that was slain. And you have redeemed for yourself men from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And one day we will be able to sing praises to you face to face. Help us to see you this morning and help us to understand how these things are going to come to be. That we may be faithful in our service to you here while we are here. In Christ's name, amen. As we have been looking at the book of Revelation, we see that it splits out very simply. It, you have three divisions. You have the things that are, the things that have been, the things that John has seen, the things that are, and then the things that shall take place after these things. The things that John has seen is chapter one. The things that are, are chapters two and three. And then beginning in chapter 4, it transitions into the things that will take place after these things. And we saw in chapters 4 and 5, the prelude to judgment. And in chapters 4 and 5, that prelude is dominated by worship. We, we, get, to, we get a behind-the-curtain view into heaven. John is called up into heaven in the Spirit. And he is able to see God Almighty seated on his throne. He's able to see the lamb standing as if slain. And the lamb is found worthy to take a book from the hand of Almighty God, a book that is sealed with seven seals. And he is able to take it because he's the one who is worthy. And so... We see that in chapters four and five, and we see the, uh, the praise that comes to God, uh, beginning with the four living creatures that are there in his presence, the four cherubim, and then the 24 elders that are seated on thrones around God's throne, expanding to the angels that are in heaven and ultimately expanding to all of creation, praising him. In singing his praises. And at the end, we see the lamb coming and taking the book. And here in chapter 6, we're going to see the lamb beginning to break the seven seals of this book. Now, we're not going to hear a book read. John says nothing about reading or hearing the contents of this book being read. It is as each seal is broken, something happens. And those somethings are judgments. This is the beginning of the outpouring of God's wrath on Satan and on Satan's kingdom and those who serve him. And in, and in fact, what we're going to see as time goes on, those, these are going to be those who willingly serve him. So if you're looking for warm fuzzies 
you're not going to find them here. These judgments are going to start off, um, <laughs> you want to say they're going to start off mild. Before we get out of this chapter, there's going to be two billion, that's billion with a B, dead people on this planet. And so there's nothing mild about any of this, and yet the seal judgments are the least of the three series. Remember that we're going to come across, there's seven seal judgments, going to be followed by seven trumpet judgments that are going to be followed by seven bowl judgments. And it, with each series, as they come along, the consequences and the intensity of each of those series cranks up a notch and ultimately resulting in God's unbridled, unmixed, undiluted wrath being poured out. Now we're going to be introduced to four horses in the first four seals. And if you have ever uh, spent any time uh, in this, you'll, you'll notice, you'll recognize uh, the phrase. It even is used um, secularly. You have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Chapter 6 is where they come from. And so with each of these seals, as the first four, there's going to be a command. Now, depending on which translation you use, that command is either going to be come or come and see, depending on your translation, because there are various manuscripts and the manuscripts are split. Now, if you go with the command of come, then most likely that command is directed to whoever is coming out as a result of that seal being broken. Does that make sense? If the command is come and see, then who would that command be directed to? John. Because it's John who is, would be coming to see what it is that is taking place. And again, for, for there's, there's support for either. I think more likely it is um, better to be seen that it's come. It's a command to whoever it is that is uh, coming as a result of that seal. And the reason for that is this. Who is causing these things to happen? God is. This isn't happening from someone's independent choice. It's not on their time, their time schedule. It's on God's. And so here we're going to see people, people or uh, MacArthur puts it as forces that are coming at specific times. Now, as you read this, in fact, let's, uh, before we read our text, let's go back to Matthew chapter 24. Now, Matthew chapter 24 is the upper room discourse. This is Jesus shortly before his suffering. The disciples have come to him in verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're good at asking multi-stage questions. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, birth pangs, let's just stop there for a moment. Um, I gratefully have never experienced birth pangs, and I am grateful for that. Now, I have watched it many times. You all know that it's many, right? And what is it like, ladies, for when you bear children, when you deliver children? How does it start off? Honey bun, you're the only person I know that could say easier. I would be screaming with the first part, right? Is the first part the most difficult? No. Is it easy? No. All right? And us guys need to recognize all of that, right? So it starts off, it's painful. But what happens with that pain? Oh, it ramps up. It intensifies, doesn't it? And in fact, when is it most severe? <laughs> it increases and increases, and then you have a period right before the birth, right, where it is bad. Then you have the child, hopefully quickly, right? When Jesus talks about here, when he's talking about you're going to hear war, you're going to hear rumors of war, war there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, you're seeing all of these things, these are just the beginnings of the birth pangs. So again, here in Matthew 24, he is indicating that there's going to be a period of time where there's difficulty, but this is just the beginning. This ain't the, the bad part. That's coming still. And he continues, verse 9, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Who are those people, by the way? Those are the tagalong, those are the tares. Those are the tares. It's easy at this point in time to play church, especially in this country. It's easy to come in here on Sunday morning. How many of you would be here if the, if the likelihood was before we leave, there's going to be people busting in the doors with guns? to take us away. How many would be here? If you're a tear, you're not sticking around for that, right? Unless you're the real deal, you're not going to hang around and you're, you're, you're going to be one of these whose love grows cold because there wasn't really love there to begin with. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. So, now, let's go to Revelation chapter 6 and read our text. Revelation 6, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. 
and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So we have, do you see the parallel between the seals here in the beginning of chapter 6 and the outline that Jesus was giving in Matthew 24? In the beginning, you have these different things happening. You have war, you have famine, you have earthquakes, and this is just the beginning. And so here we have this being borne out now in these first four seals. Now our first seal, in, in verses 1 and 2, we see a rider on a white horse. Now normally, who rides the white horse? Okay, step out, take a, take a step back a little further. Who normally rides the white horse and wears the white hat? The good guy, right? The good guy has got the white horse. And when you get to chapter 19, we do see Jesus on a white horse. And so we see that very clearly in chapter 19. So the question is, who's this guy on this white horse? Now, if we step back for a moment, who masquerades as an angel of light. Satan does. Satan comes in, he wants you to think he's the good guy. And in fact, his emissary in the, in the tribulation period, the Antichrist, is exactly that way. In the beginning, he is posturing as the good guy. In fact, he's the savior. He comes into a world promising peace and promising things that, you know what, we're going to be able to... Rodney King would be very proud of this Antichrist. Can't we just get along? And the Antichrist says, you bet. You bet we can. And if you follow me, we're going to be able to go down that road. And so he promises peace. 
And in fact, he's going to pull something off that has never been done. How many Nobel Peace Prizes have been awarded for trying to achieve peace in the Middle East? Bunches, several. Who's been able to actually pull it off? Nobody, right? This guy will. This guy will. And in fact, if you go back to Daniel 9, verse 27, you'll find that he comes in and the event that triggers the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period, the event that triggers that is the Antichrist signing a peace treaty with Israel. That starts the time clock. And you've got seven years following from that period. So the guy on the white horse here, what is he carrying? He's carrying a bow. What's a, yeah, no arrows, at least none that are recorded. What's a bow used for? It's used for war. Yeah, some guys use them for hunting. I have a bow that I can use for hunting. But even when you're hunting, what's the purpose of me having that bow? It's to kill something. And so the idea of a bow is the idea of warfare. And what's his purpose? He's going out to conquer. Now, there are a number of different ways to conquer. You don't have to use the bow to conquer, right? Not necessarily, especially if you're promising good things on the way in. A lot of people who end up being despots start that way. That's how they start. And so he has a bow. He has a crown. Now, again, there's two different words for crowns, right? When you see crown, usually that's the Stephanos. That's the victor's crown. The other word is usually going to be translated diadem. And what is the diadem? That's the royal, that's the, that's the royal crown. When you talk about crowning Christ with many crowns, what kinds of crowns are those? Those are diadems. So this guy has got a, he's got a Stephanos. He's an imposter. He's not the real deal. And so he goes out conquering and to conquer. Then you have the second seal. And you end up with a red horse. And this has got a rider too. This rider is armed with a sword. Now there's a couple different words for sword. This one is machera. This was the short, you know, a Roman soldier often had two swords. He had his big one that would be used for major defense. And then he's got a smaller one tucked in here. That's the short stabbing sword. That's the one that you finish somebody off with. That's what this is. So again, it is, it's also an instrument of death. This guy has got that kind of a sword. And he is given power. So again, who is controlling this? God is. God gives this writer power to remove peace from the earth. When you remove peace from the earth, what do you get? Well, you get chaos, and ultimately you'll get what? Wars and rumors of wars. Where there isn't an actual conflict, oh, everything is stirring. So you got everything there. Everything's ready to go. It's like having the campfire, you know, having your kindling all piled up, and you got the pine cone. Underneath that, what's it waiting for? A match. That's all it's waiting for. And so here you have... 
peace removed from the earth all the way around. There's not going to be an oasis. There's not going to be a, a peaceful place to go. Now, what's the natural, what is a natural outcome of widespread war? Death, what else? Destruction, famine, famine. Is our country at war? Do we have people flying over our country and bombing us? I'm sorry? We got rumors of war, but the fact of the matter is, are we actually at war with anybody right now? No. No. But why is our economy struggling so much? Why is there so much scarcity? That's an effect. Now, you see how much we're being affected now by a single local conflict. What's going to happen when all of a sudden that's widespread? Now, I am not old enough. My parents weren't old enough. My parents were born in 1940. And so they were just kids during World War II. Carolyn's folks were adults in World War II. Her dad was a captain in the army in Europe. What was going on in the United States domestically during World War II? Rationing. Something that they put up with and they endured that frankly I don't think our culture or our society would have the stomach for. Everything was rationed. Everything. Gasoline, rubber, food, sugar, flour, everything was rationed because they had to be able to send stuff overseas. We had an army to feed. We had things that we had to build. We had equipment. We had our, you know, all kinds of war equipment that needed to be built. And so that had to come from somewhere. And so there was rationing and there was great scarcity that's the way it's going to be worldwide. So is it any surprise that you would end up with famine? Where you would end up with scarcity of food? That's our third seal. There's a black horse, and the rider has got a set of scales. A denarius was a day's wage for a common laborer. So you could buy a quart of wheat. Now, a quart of wheat, from what I'm told, is about as much wheat as you can hold in both of your hands together, cupped. Mound up what's in here, that's about a quart of wheat. That's a day's wages. So how do you feed a family on that? That was for wheat. That was what people used. Barley was more commonly used for either poor people or livestock. Now, you could get three of these. You could get three quarts of barley for a day's wages, for a day's wage. But again, how much are you going to be able to feed a family on that? So, what do you have? You've got a starvation diet. You know, if you go back to the book of Ezekiel, I, I, I don't see it so much today, but about, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, there was, a, there was a fad. And the fad was, you know what? You should eat Ezekiel bread. The, the, the recipe for bread that's in the, that you find in the book of Ezekiel that Ezekiel himself was eating for a period of time. That's a horrible idea. Because what was Ezekiel bread? It was a starvation diet. Ezekiel was being a live poster child to the people 
the, to the other um, exiles there in Babylon as to this is what's going to be happening in Judah. They're not going to have enough to eat. So he was eating this bread, at the, which then was very rationed, and was not enough to be able to live on. So as he's going on, as he's lying on one side for 390 days, and then lying on his other side for 70 days in the course of his ministry, and he's on this diet, what's happening to his body in that period of time? He's wasting away. Because that's what the people were going to be doing. And so he's basically a live skit for them. So much of his ministry was that way. I tell you what, I want to meet that guy when I get to heaven. Because when you, you, when you talk about somebody whose life was used by God to communicate a message, Ezekiel's got to be at the top of that list. And so for the poor, what are they left with? Not much. Because when you're poor, how much reserves have you got? You don't, right? I forget what the figure is. There is a significant portion of the people in our country, so I've heard the statistic, that couldn't come up with $400 to handle an emergency. And I want to say it's like a third or 40% of the people in this country are that tight financially. What's going to happen to them in this day? We've got a bunch of older people who are on a fixed income. What happens to them when the price of gasoline doubles as it has? Are they going to be able to heat their home when the price of that fuel doubles. So you can see there's all kinds of ways here where this begins to affect especially the poor. The rich are in a little different position. That's why you see don't damage the oil and the wine. Those are, you can use them for cooking, but those were, you know, if you're wealthier, you've got enough and you, you're typically going to be able to ride out that storm a little better when it comes to famine. So the wealthy, they don't take it quite as bad. So we've got war, rumors of war, widespread famine, and then the fourth seal. The lamb breaks the fourth seal, and here comes the ashen horse. Now this word ashen is the Greek word chloros. We get chlorine from that and chlorophyll. So it's also used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about green grass. So this is kind of a pale green color. So here comes this horse. Algae. <laughs> and who's riding this one? Death. Green is the institutional color of Islam. Green's the institutional color of Islam. <laughs> Now you have, the, death is the rider of this horse. Now this horse is a little different. The previous horses have been just a rider on the horse. This is death riding an ashen horse, but what's following death? Hades, the abiding place of the dead. Now death and Hades get mentioned together actually fairly frequently. We see death and Hades in chapter 1, verse 18, and then we'll see it also in chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. So the idea here is you've got death. Now, this idea here, again, when you have war and you have famine, what is a natural consequence of those two things? Starts with a P, pestilence. Again, there's a trio that you, that you see several times in the Old Testament. War, the sword, famine, and pestilence. Frankly, those three things were used by God in correcting Israel. That was God tightening up 
bringing more and more pressure to bear to cause them to turn back to him. And so sword, famine, pestilence, they kind of, that's a, that's a nasty trio. Now what's the idea of pestilence? Okay, disease. Now this is one of these things where again, we have to look at a history book in order to be able to understand this. Because frankly, we've never seen it. Not in this country. Not for decades. If you go back to the Civil War, you'll find that frankly, many people died, not as a direct result of being shot, but from wounds, from disease. What happens when you end up with a bunch of dead people who don't get buried immediately? Oh, now wait a minute now. We've got some, some diseases that come hand in hand with that now, don't we? Something else that we never hear about now, cholera. A horrible disease. Falls right in line here. Typhoid. There's all kinds of diseases that come into play here with pestilence. Okay, the, the question is, pestilence doesn't involve rats and insects and things like that. You can have something like that. Now, so if we go back into the Middle Ages when we had the Black Death, right, so rats were able to transmit that. But again, a lot of what was going on with the Black Death had to do with their hygiene at the time. And so it, that's a means of being able to spread it, yes. And so the idea of pestilence is that, you know, it's, it's I forget where this is. Um, the guy who escapes this judgment goes here, you know, so he, he survives getting shot over here and he goes over here and he's on his way to his home and a bear mauls him and if he escapes the bear, he gets over to his house and the house falls down. I mean, I'm butchering that badly. Dave, do you know where that is? That's actually God using that to talk about people who escape this, but then they fall to this or they fall to this. This is that kind of an idea. Okay, I managed not to get shot in the war. Or if I did get shot, at least I didn't get killed. And then I come home and all of a sudden I'm getting wasted by this, or I'm getting wasted by this, or I'm getting wasted by this. And, uh, you know, I escape all of that and I'm in my bedroom in my home, and an airplane falls out of the sky, crashes through the roof, and kills me. That happened in Roseville a few years ago. Kid had come home sick from school. He's in his bedroom, second floor of the house. An airplane falls out of the sky, crashes into the house, and kills the kid. You look at that, and you, you know, where did that come from? That's the idea here with this fourth seal. If you go to Ezekiel 14, 12 to 21, you'll find all four of these listed together. So you have the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Okay, why wild beasts? Okay, part of this fourth seal, remember, this guy's been given power. Death has been given power to claim a fourth of the population of the planet. Now, a fourth of the population of the planet is the entire population of Africa plus the entire population of North America. Every living person in Africa and in North America is dead. Now, are you gonna be able to bury two billion people no. So what happens? You get scavengers to begin with. Okay? So the vultures, they're having a field day. And it's not just the vultures. All of a sudden, you end up with a bunch of other animals that are able to be scavengers and come up and learn what it is to eat flesh. And what happens to a dog that gets accustomed to eating raw meat? 
all of a sudden, you don't look so much like somebody where, you know, I want this guy to take me for a walk. You start to look like, hey, this guy looks like food for the next week. And so now all of a sudden, you've got wild beasts preying on people. They start as scavengers, they end up as predators. So here again, you've got massive destruction, massive famine, pestilence. Everything is falling apart. And we're on seal number four. Fifth seal is a little different than the others. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So why are these people dead? They're martyrs. What does the word martyr mean in Greek? You know that that is a transliteration of a Greek word, right? It means witness. These people have borne out their witness for Christ with their blood. They have been killed because of the word of God. They've held to the word of God. And they have maintained their testimony for God. And they have been hunted. Remember Matthew 24? How did Jesus put it to his disciples? Men are going to hunt you down. You're going to have family members turning on one another. You're going to have friends turning on one another. And many are going to be killed for Christ. Many. There's a question as to which altar this is referring to. Um, it's, there's no reason to be definitive on that. Most likely, where would, when we, there's, the altar of incense was closest to the throne. And what is incense as we have already seen it in the book of Revelation? What is that a reference to? The prayers of the saints. These people, these saints are crying out to God. How long? When are you going to judge? When are you going to avenge? <laughs> I was hoping to be able to skate by on that one. That's all right. The question is, he's able... No, no, no. Yeah, right. And so the question is, he's able to see the souls under the altar. And, okay, and it, it, it gets better or worse, depending on your perspective. They're given robes. How do you wear a robe if you're a disembodied soul? Are you Casper the friendly ghost? And so the idea here... All right, so first off, who are these people? Let's start there. Who are these people? They're martyrs. From when? Okay, now here's, the, here's where we need to answer that question. Because if these are martyrs from all time, are they just souls? What's already happened? Okay. Now we got to back up, all right? If the rapture has already occurred, what is the status of all the New Testament saints? Right, we've got our resurrected bodies. We are good to go for eternity, all right? No improvements needed, no model 2.0, all right? We're good to go. What about the Old Testament saints? Where are they? They're still in the ground. They haven't been resurrected yet. So it's, it's best 
to recognize here that these are the people who have come out of the tribulation. These are tribulation saints. They haven't got their bodies yet. Now, do they have something as a space holder? I don't know. Most commentators say that the white robe is a figurative statement. What are people, what are saints in heaven clothed in? White, white linen, right? And the word here is, is, is stole, it was used for a robe that basically goes to the floor, goes to the ground. And again, it's white, and so it's indicative of purity. You know, you've been, you're, 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 you're pure. You're not contaminated. You're not polluted anymore. And so I don't have a definitive answer for that one. Gunner? Right? Right? Okay. Okay, so the comment is, is that uh, God is outside of time, and so John is seeing something that uh, we haven't, that has not happened yet, and so it could cover more than just the immediate time. I think the other thing that tends to show that these are tribulation saints is the response that these people get. They, each of them is given a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. Now that's not definitive for being able to eliminate, for instance, the Old Testament prophets. Um, I think it's more likely that it's tribulation, but again, I wouldn't be necessarily uh, dogmatic on that. The interesting thing here about fellow servants and brethren Fellow servants is other believers. Brethren, they're the guys that are just like you. They're the ones that are going to be killed for their faith. Cherie. So if you go back to Matthew 29, mm-hmm. She's in Matthew 24. And uh, so Sheree is, is going back, hey, listen, if you go back to Matthew, that would tend to make it more of the, of the tribulation saints because when we get into, it would help if I got to chapter 24. Chapter 9 is not going to do it. You know, nations rising, uh, starting in verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. So, here you have these saints that are being murdered for their faith. Now, the idea here, they ask, when... Lord, how long until you judge? How long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those who dwell on the earth is a common phrase that we're going to see in the book of Revelation, and it refers to unbelievers who are on the earth. Judging is the idea of establishing innocence or guilt. So judging would be the judicial decree of guilt. Avenging is the carrying out of the sentence for that guilt. The execution of justice. Now, is God going to avenge them? Yes. But he's going to do it on his schedule. 
And in fact, when you look at it, um, they have to wait until their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. What does that tell us? Pardon me? There's more who are going to be martyred, and there's a number. A predetermined number. God has a list. And he knows everybody who's on it. Every single one. And those times, the time of their death will come. And they will suffer. Dave has been preaching about suffering. These people are going to suffer. They will seal. They will be faithful unto death so that they may inherit the crown of life. And so when the last one of them is dead, then God's going to act. It doesn't stop. And by the way, let's, let's stop here for just one second. What is inherently implied as we look at these seals? There's something that's inherently apply, implied. We have passage of time. Okay? We started with this imposter riding in on the white horse. Then we progress to wars and rumors of wars. And then we progress to famine. And then we progress to pestilence. And now all of a sudden, we've got these souls underneath the altar who are crying out to God, how long are you going to hold back justice? So the idea here is that we have a progression of time whereby all of these things are going, listen, it takes a little while. I suppose the death angel could take out two billion people overnight. But taking two billion people out overnight isn't the same as wars and rumors of wars, right? We're talking about something that takes place over time. And so we're, we're moving along during that seven-year period. Okay, so the question is, are there people being redeemed during this period of time? And that answer is yes. There's a bunch. Yeah, and so we're going to see, um, pretty soon here, we're going to have 144,000 witnesses from Israel, 12,000 from 12 tribes. Those people are redeemed. And then as they are witnessing, they're going to be testifying, and you're going to be having a bunch of Jews, and you're going to be having a bunch of Gentiles also. Again, what's the focus, what's God's focus here during the tribulation period? He's focusing on Israel. That's why everything's about Israel. And yet again, a gracious God expands that also to where other people who aren't Jews are still going to be able to be redeemed. And so you've got a bunch of people who are going to be witnesses in the biblical sense. Again, witness, their word was martyr. And so, yes, there's going to be Gentiles. Yes, there's going to be Jews being redeemed in this period. And again, do you see how God is... Even in justice, remember mercy. God is still being merciful. 
He is still redeeming people. Yet, we need to see the sixth seal. Because there's a flip side to that. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. So all of a sudden now, we are having cosmological events. And these are earthquakes like, this isn't an earthquake like, this morning there was a 3.2 trembler. This ain't like, this is not like that. This is... uh, Buildings falling down. This is, you know, mountains getting moved and islands going away. So this is a significant thing. And you can tell how significant it is. You see things happening to the sun. Um, the idea of it, of it being black, the, the sackcloth was made from black wool. And the idea of that was it would breathe when it was dry but when it got wet, it would mat together and it would become almost waterproof, meaning, can you see through it? No. And so it's like the sun. You can't see the sun shining. What did the, how did the Egyptians respond when all of a sudden there was darkness in Egypt in one of the plagues? That, oh, they were terrified. And in fact, later on, that is one of the other more severe judgments. I think it's one of the bowls to where there's darkness on the earth and men are gnawing their tongue in pain because of the darkness. Now, I imagine that's because of fear. So the idea here is, is that, again, it's starting to ratchet up. This is something where everybody sees it, everybody knows, and they know who to attribute it to. Now, the wars, and in fact, you even have people who say that, you know, the wars and the rumors of wars, that's not God's judgment. That's just people being people. And the idea of the famine and the idea of the pestilence, you know, they, there's a number of people who say that, you know, those, the first seal judgments, that's man on man. But when you get to this one, everybody knows who's responsible for this. Pardon me? Yeah, it's not UFOs. The sky is splitting apart like a scroll. Every element of society, kings of the earth, great men, commanders, rich, strong, slave, free, they're hiding. They are heading to the hills. Idaho doesn't have enough room for all these people to move. They are going in and they're trying to find a place. And in fact, they're saying to the rocks, fall on us to hide us. And what to hide us from what? Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Wow. They have some understanding of who God is. They have some understanding of who Jesus is. But what is the attitude of their heart? Hide us. Are they repenting? No. So they know why this judgment is coming. This is judgment from God. And yet even knowing that, even going through that, They will not bow their knee. They will not bow their will. It doesn't matter how much information they have. They're not going to bow. We will not have that man to rule over us. How many people have you run into who have rejected the gospel in life and here they come to the end of life And it's not theoretical. It's not hypothetical. They are going to die imminently. And you go to share the gospel with them and they say, talk to the hand. Don't want to hear it. Now I'm looking around. I don't see anybody that I would expect that of in your last day. 
But we all know people who do, who are in that boat, who are in that boat. The fact, of the, the fact of the matter is, today is the acceptable time. Today is a day of salvation. You cannot bank on, I will live my life as I want now, and at the end of my life, after I've been able to dine at the buffet of sin and self for my whole life, I'll burp and I'll turn everything over to God at the last second so that I can avoid judgment. You have no guarantee that that's going to happen, Mary. Yeah, Mary's comment is these people are living through it. They're seeing all of these things in living color. They know it. They reject it anyway. Andrew. Yes. So Andrew's comment, the same, the same sun that melts wax also hardens the clay. You know, there's judicial hardening here. Frankly, we'll skip ahead here a little bit. When you get to the millennial kingdom, who is populating the millennial kingdom for being able to have children? Survivors of the tribulation. Redeemed survivors. These people didn't read about it in a book. They lived it. They're going to have children. Those children have parents who were eyewitnesses to these things. And yet, what is going to happen at the end of that thousand years? With Satan bound and people and, and having people who saw these things, with Jesus physically ruling on the earth, you're still going to have millions who are going to rebel. And so, again, the human, look, anytime you hear somebody tell you to follow your heart, slap them. <laughs> that is a time where it's okay to be pugnacious. That, don't do that. Don't do that. Our hearts are wicked. They are deceitful. All right, just real quick, we're, we're Brian. Yeah, it's not an information problem. It's a heart problem. Right. How does chapter 6 end? What's the last phrase? Who is able to stand? Who can stand? I cannot end there. Turn to Psalm 130. For us, out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. It is heartbreaking on one hand to see those who've got all the information that they need yet refuse to bow. And dear ones, every one of us would be in the same boat had God not rescued us. And let that drive your hearts to worship this morning. 
we get to be here. We get to be saved from this affliction, this particular one. And we get to enjoy eternity with our Redeemer because of him. Not because of our own merit. Because of him. And because there's forgiveness, God doesn't keep track. God doesn't keep score for us. All of those sins covered. That is reason for worship. That's reason for gratitude. Eternal gratitude. And I don't mean eternal in the sense of lasting forever. I mean eternal in the sense of starting that now. We don't have to wait for heaven in order to be able to offer up that kind of praise to our Redeemer. That ought to be now. Let's pray. Father, how sobering it is that all of these who see the trouble, who know why it's coming, they recognize that it's an act of Almighty God. And they even know to be able to say it's the wrath of the Lamb, one who died to save from sin. And yet they will not bow, bow their knee. And Lord, that was us. And outside of your rescuing us, it would be us. And so, Father, we are so grateful that you extended to us mercy and grace and compassion. And you are going to extend mercy and grace to compassion to many in that time. There will be many who are going to be redeemed. Thank you that even in the midst of pouring out your wrath, you're still also merciful. Father, help us not to presume upon you. The flip side to that is true as well. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are compassionate but you're also holy. And so, Father, help us to be faithful in our day that when we hear these things, we would not be silent, but that we would speak, that we would speak as one, that we would be unified, that our hearts would be knit together in your word, in your spirit that we would strive forth to be your servants in the day in which we live. Lord, we don't know when these things are coming, when these things are going to happen. You do. It's all written in your book. And so, Father, help us to be faithful in being your hands, your feet, your mouths while we draw breath in this life. In Christ's name, amen.